A telescope and microscope in and of themselves were one of the simple inventions that only took a few people around the same time to come to the same conclusions about optics and the ability for lenses to magnify, which would result in ideas for a telescope proliferating around Europe. The microscope and telescope were such simple inventions that it was only the idea of how to do it that was needed to spread the invention. Compare this to flight, which took thousands of years from conception to completion. The Venetian glassblowers were already experts at making glass, and these skills had spread to much of Italy, and then the great cities of medieval Europe like Brussels or Amsterdam, and later Paris, London or Switzerland. In Venice they had been making spectacles for centuries, before the idea of using the lenses for more powerful reasons were formulated. It's not an obvious link from spectacles to the telescope or microscope. What was powerful was the idea of doing this. The telescope and microscope, therefore, only required a couple of modifications from other already existing inventions, namely glass, lenses, and whatever you make it of, be it wood, iron, steel, or in the case of the Hubble telescope, carbon fibre to surround the lenses and mirrors. The telescope and microscope may not technically be quite an achievement as flight or as monumental as printing, but it cannot be doubted how much of an impact the revelations it provided to the natural world had on society and science. The bringing of new scientific instruments always brings great discoveries and confirmations of theories. The particle accelerator has vastly improved our understanding of everything from medical biology to physics, engineering and even computer science. CERN was the birthplace of the World Wide Web, after all. The telescope and microscope has peered into every facet of our life, whether that's in understanding the rings of Saturn or in understanding what bacteria are. Think of the benefits antibiotics has given to humanity. The telescope and microscope, at relatively regular intervals over the last few hundred years, have improved and continued to improve our understanding of the universe, both at the macro level and the micro level. The telescope is still going strong with the Hubble and James Webb telescopes peering into the universe. The microscope too is continuing to develop through the most ingenious of ways in being able to take photographic images of such infinitesimally small particles that the light wave is thicker than the gaps between the particles. Some thought it was impossible to actually be able to observe any smaller objects if light can literally not penetrate any closer. If it's not lit up by light, you can't take a photograph, as there's no light. So you might have thought this would be the theoretical maximum a microscope could peer into. Well, wait to the end of the podcast to find out how scientists actually managed to take a closer look at light waves. Telescopes, so. What is a telescope? It is a scientific tool for mankind to be able to magnify far-off distances. Sure, we can do astronomy without any instruments, and we did. But our eyes are only just about good enough to pick out certain planets in our solar systems. 
So what we did was invent a better way to observe the natural world. So where was astronomy before the telescope? Astronomy starts with the earliest of man. Early man would slowly begin to have noticed astronomical phenomena above them. Certain relationships between the sun, moon and stars would have been passed down from father to son, mother to daughter. The variety of ways this might have happened are infinite. But in certain relationships, such as the behaviour of the sun in relation to where it rises and sets, and how long it stays in the sky, in summer and winter, and the clear patterns in the sky that came back night after night would all have been noticed. While the band of light that is the Milky Way galaxy would have often loomed large over the skies. They may have also noticed that while their positions moved in relation to the observer, they remained at the same distances apart in the sky. It probably would not have taken long for man to also notice that all the stars in the sky circled around a fixed point. However, the moon would have been harder to understand. It changes appearance every night, from crescent to full. Sometimes it disappears altogether. Would Paleolithic man have known about planets? They would have known of Venus, with it sometimes bright enough to cast a shadow onto Earth. Would they have noticed, at times, a much fainter object, Mercury in the sky? They would have known about Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, which are too prominent not to notice. The lunar and solar eclipses that would have taken place must have astounded those who were watching. As for constellations, there are three main ones identified all those years ago. These three constellations are the brightest in the sky, and must have been seen by people of the day. Their names Ursa Major, Taurus and Orion. All three can still be seen in major UK cities, if you know where to look. Despite these being some of the most light polluted places on Earth. To demonstrate the reliance on the skies, of 82 hunter-gatherer groups once assessed, it was estimated that 63 of them monitored the solstice, that's the height of the winter or summer in terms of length of day. The winter solstice was often seen as the more important, with it marking the new year. Perhaps the best place to see Paleolithic astronomy was in Australia, where the Aboriginals were the only civilization not yet to have discovered or developed agriculture. As the British began to settle, they noticed the native languages of the Aboriginals often related to the skies, stars and ancestral spirits. There's no reason to believe this was unique to Australia. Early Paleolithic farming settlers often used some form of lunar calendar, and this tradition continued to Roman, Jewish, Islamic and Chinese calendars during this period. We should note the development of calendars were not a sudden thing. As researcher Alexander Marshak noted, he argued the evidence of early calendars were based upon the idea that the peoples of the Upper Paleolithic would need to understand season in order to plant fishing or to harvest fruit and berries, a relatively deep knowledge of stored information via calendars would be needed. Some suggest the development of astronomical calendars was invented so the elites of the tribe or settlement could tell the farmers when to plant crops. Knowledge is power. 
The reliance of the tribe is down to those who guard the knowledge of when to plant crops. It was not only calendars Ice Age man was able to fashion, but also star maps. The region of Franco-Cantabria in northeast Spain and southwest France has 400 sites of cave paintings, but nobody knows the reasons for these paintings. Michael Rappengluck has mimicked through computer software what the skies would have looked like 45 to 15,000 years ago, and claims these paintings have astronomical origins. The same claims have been made for Stonehenge. I do think this is interesting to think about. The cave art projects must have been at the cutting edge of technology for mankind to produce. If other theories about temples in Gobleki Tepe in Turkey are correct, being used for astronomical observations, as some people believe with Stonehenge, almost all of the early man's mega-projects would have been made in order to observe the stars in some ways. Early Britons learned agriculture, we think, from immigration from northern France. Further Europe was relatively advanced as Neolithic settlement. We know this because the Neolithic history of Brittany, Britain and Ireland. Stonehenge was so long ago, and perhaps a testament to the relative power of Celtic tribes that its building even predates Mycenaean Greece. The idea that Stonehenge was made for astronomical reasons aren't yet accepted, but no reasons are accepted for why it was made. The best argument for Stonehenge being what it is, in the way that it is, is that it was not made for one reason. The original structure of 3000 BC to 2620 BC was a cemetery used for cremation. This is often referred to as Old Stonehenge or Stonehenge 1. A simple circular bank with an 11 meter ditch enclosing it. The second Stonehenge is no longer visible, probably because it was made with timber and still used for cremation. The third Stonehenge has stone originating from quarries in Wales. These stones are speculated to have political importance. Perhaps it was a source of political unification after conflict, or the sign of migrating peoples. There must have been some reason for people to carry these stones from Wales to Wiltshire. But why they did put these stones over this old cremation site, and why it was this place in particular wasn't happenstance. Where Stonehenge is built is on an alignment of the summer solstice sunrise in one direction and the winter solstice in the other. Between 2620 BC and 2480 BC, the now familiar stones began to be placed. Both local sandstone and the Welsh stone were placed alongside each other. Cremation stopped at the site around 2400 BC. Stonehenge began to be used for ritual winter feasts, attended by several thousand people representing a not insignificant amount of the population of Britain. Remains of pigs from all over Britain have been found at the site in archaeology, suggesting a level of interaction all over the island far beyond what was previously thought. This island Britain was further cut off from the continent 
as there is no evidence of cross-channel interaction during this time. So Britain, for whatever reason, seemed to be centering around this point because of the solstice alignment at Stonehenge. Whether Stonehenge became a point of interest beyond its celestial properties can surely be beyond doubt. Anything more than that would be speculation. But it's clear that even all those thousands of years ago, looking at stars was a key part of it. Stonehenge may simply have been one structure. Perhaps there were more around Britain of these great structures, and maybe we'll never know. In ancient Mesopotamia, the world's first urban societies were popping up. From around 6000 BC to 3200 BC, city-states were popping up in present-day southern Iraq. Often these came into conflict until Sargon of Akkad came to dominate in his empire. Following the Akkadian Empire, it was followed by the Third Dynasty of Ur, the Old Babylonian Empire, the Kassites, the Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Seleucid Empire. During this long history, a long tradition of astronomy was maintained, despite the relative political instability in the world's first civilized society. The Babylonians were essentially astrologers and not astronomers. Even this early in society, man had managed to get a point of specialization of labor, allowing astronomers, astrologists, and mathematicians freedom to pursue their skills. While we still don't fully understand Babylonian mathematics, it's clear it was advanced. The old Babylonians inherited the Sumerian sexagesimal, that's base 60, system, and also their appetite for astronomy, except they put it to better use. They developed a calendar based on the lunisolar method, tracking the solar year and the months which followed the phases of the moon. The evening crescent moon appears every 29 or 30 days. It's often claimed the Babylonians were aware of the phases of Venus, a discovery often attributed to Galileo in 1609, yet this is highly controversial. Later Babylonian astronomers were able to predict the movement of celestial bodies with greater accuracy than any other pre-Greek civilization. The Babylonians led to a legacy of data that would be passed on to the Greeks, but what essentially the Babylonians gave us with their highly accurate observations was the start of scientific observation, prediction and testing of natural phenomena, an idea the Greeks would take and run with. Astronomical observations in the Greek era helped to confirm the shape of the Earth. The Greeks also worked out a good approximation of the Earth's circumference, way before China. This was done by erotnices of Cyrene. Hearing that in Cyrene, that's two different Cyrenes by the way, confusing I know, it had at noontime sun on the summer solstice no shadow, meaning the sun was directly overhead. Yet in Alexandria, the sun didn't reach zenith and it did cast a shadow at noon. Erotnices managed to work out that the angular distance of the sun from the zenith was a fifteenth of a whole circle. Therefore, the distance from Alexandria to Cyrene was therefore a fiftieth of the circumference of the whole world. It's not known how the measurement of Alexandria to Cyrene was made, yet it's remarkable that it was, and so accurate using such crude mathematics.
Yet the question of how Erasmus knew the earth was round to begin with is an interesting thought and not entirely clear. Early Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Hebrew and Homeric Greek civilizations all thought the world was flat. Even if it's not been proven, that a gradual shift began in the understanding that the world was round, which comes from the thought of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, with the discovery widely attributed to Parmenides, Hesiod or Pythagoras. When Socrates was in his youth, it's thought that debate was still raging. Plato was a strong advocate for the spherical earth theory, as was Aristotle. It was no real idea of how the change in opinion over the centuries took place. The understanding that the world is round is a pretty monumental one, and it's quite counterintuitive. It's often claimed by people you can see the curvature of the world from a mountain or a tall building, or even a clifftop, but it's mostly nonsense. Even from an aircraft, it's not entirely clear. Only very high altitude aircraft like Concorde does the Earth's curvature start to become clear. David Lynch, the astronomer, has said that even from high mountains, the curvature is not clear. The first people who would have seen the curvature for themselves was the high altitude balloonists of the 1930s. The entire knowledge of the curvature of the Earth and its circumference comes from our early astronomical observations and clever mathematics, not with our own eyes. After the Greeks, the next major development was in the Islamic Golden Age, often called that in large part due to its development in astronomy. Arab astronomy began by translating Indian and Greek texts into Arabic. The Arabs adopted the Hindu numeral systems over the less efficient ones Romans used and kept the Arabic names, meaning English today has many Arabic loanwords in use to describe mathematics and astronomy, algebra, algorithm, nadir, zenith and zero. The push for this development in maths and science was seen as an obligation to Islam. There was a need for a calendar as a reliable means of determining local time for praying and, as Islam spread, in locating the direction of prayer towards Mecca. By the middle of the 9th century, the city of Baghdad became the largest book repository in the world, and the libraries that held these books became the centre of an exchange between Western and Eastern science and learning. It translated Greek, Persian, Indian and Assyrian works and reintroduced forgotten learnings back to the West, along with some new Eastern knowledge. One of the most significant of these translations was Ptolemy's Algamast, which was a 2nd century Greek work on the motions of the stars and planetary paths. Caliph al-Munum thought there was a need to verify some of the work inside it, and so in 827 he ordered a new estimation of the diameter of the Earth. It was led by astronomer Khalid ibn Abd al-Malik al-Marani and Ali ibn Isa al-Astalabi. When they came back with a figure, it was only 127 miles away from our correct figure today. Ptolemy's work, however, wasn't just accepted in Arabia as fact. Almost as the translation started, 
The theories Ptolemy worked upon to explain the cosmos were dropped. His ideas, like that the physics of space were different to that of Earth, that in the West took for Newton to dispel, was already a well-established fact in literate Muslim circles. Later in the 10th and 11th centuries, Islamic texts went further in taking apart many theories of Greek science, like the theory of vision. Ibn al-Haytham argued that light rays were not emitted from our eyes, and was the first to explain that vision occurs when light reflects from an object, and then passes to one's eyes. The Muslim scholars of this period were the best in the world, and it's a shame they couldn't go further and be the place of enlightenment. With the Mongol civilization's invasions, the prizing of religious over scientific knowledge led to a decline, and perhaps more crucially, an inability to give rebirth. The rebirth would take place in Europe, using much of what the Islamic world transcribed, analysed and discovered, leaving astronomy in a far better place than they found it. It might have been a lot harder for European scientists to protest the failings of Greek learning if the Muslims hadn't done it before them. The Renaissance following the Middle Ages was one of the key turning points in human history. With Europe seeing a resurgence in intellectualism and learning based on classicism, in part due to the influx of transcribed Muslim texts and also the 1453 invasion of Constantinople. In Europe, much of the rapid developments in knowledge and a move away from a worship of God to man himself was the result of this new knowledge coupled with the printing press able to push out these ideas. Despite the best efforts of the powers that be, information and ideas could be spread on a far grander scale. Subversive and dangerous ideas that challenge the authority of Christendom could now be spread. This change was cemented around an idea that truly undermined Aristotle's physical world and Ptolemy's work on cosmology, both of which were still backed by the Catholic Church. Nicholas Copernicus was born in northern central Poland in 1473 and enrolled at the University of Krakow in 1491, which offered courses in mathematics, astronomy and astrology. During his four years, he became interested in Aristotle's and Ptolemy's work. Yet despite spending four years there, he never graduated, dropping out what many natural philosophers did at the time and joining the clergy. In 1495, a family friend got Copernicus elected to the position of canon at the cathedral in Frombok, which would make him financially secure for life. The science community often found shelter as monks in monasteries, and so Copernicus went to study canon law at the University of Bologna. There he began astronomical observations. On the 9th of March 1497, he recorded the approach of the moon as it passed the site of Olberon, the bright star in the solar system. Yet, in 1501, he dropped out again and sought to leave up for absence to study medicine. Once again, two years later, he dropped out, this time applying to the University of Ferrara to sit an examination for doctor of canon law, where he moved in with his uncle. There, Copernicus was successful, but decided to retreat from real life in the church and went back to Fromburg, where he stayed for the rest of his life. 
There he was able to solve what truly bugged him. The contradictions between Aristotle's and Ptolemy's work on the solar system. And Copernicus put forward the heliocentric theory in his transcripts. Now, this is still pre-telescope mind. Copernicus started to realise, especially having gone back to read some of the Greek astronomers who talked about a moving Earth, and the late Islamic scholars who were talking around the subject without ever making the key insight that the Earth revolved around the Sun. Nobody quite knows how Copernicus came to work out this key insight. Most likely, he just worked it out. This was still the Renaissance, more of a continuation of classical Greece than anything particularly new. And so Copernicus presented a discussion of a heliocentric model of the century in basically the same way Ptolemy in the second century presented his geocentric view with the Earth at the centre of the universe. Copernicus discussed the philosophical implications of his proposed system. His methodology was largely geometric in detail. In these transcripts, he passed around to friends and made seven arguments, which was not a drastic departure from classical knowledge. This work was not a revolution and made a few incorrect assumptions, like the sun being the centre of the universe. Yet, this would never be accepted if he didn't back it up with maths, and so he set about doing just that. Copernicus completed his work, De Revolutionbus Orabum Celestium, in 1539. The heliocentric view that the Earth orbits the Sun was what the work was remembered for, despite being only 5% of the completed book. In 1540, the work, with an introduction for the non-scientifically minded, was published. It was dedicated to Pope Paul III to keep the Catholic Church on side. The work was read by all the mathematicians of the day, with most sitting on the fence. Many could not shake their belief that the earth could not be in motion. The Catholic Church, despite being the beneficiary of a dedication, lumbered around to banning the effective truthiness of the theory by issuing an edict against it. The censorship did very little, especially outside Italy. Copernicus started a revolution in studying the natural world similar to that of later Galileo, Newton or Einstein. One central insight could spark a whole lot more. So this is what could all be termed pre-telescope astronomy. It got us to the position of knowing that the Earth orbits the Sun. So where do we start with the telescope? Now we have looked at some of the theory from where the telescope came from. The development of glass long predates strong theoretical grasps of optics. Early lenses have been found in Crete, yet there's no evidence of what they were for, whether optics or decoration. Glass itself first appears in Egypt, where I'm sure they had plenty of sand, with later the Phoenicians being the first to manufacture glass on a large scale. Eucalyd in the 3rd century BC was the first to write about refraction. Optics by the Muslim period was a little more developed, with Alhazen experimenting to find a theory of reflection and refraction. While at Oxford, Roger Bacon was trying to study the effects of mirrors and lenses. Realising that experimentation should help form theories, 
that he can spend much money developing these experiments. As we've seen, he introduced gunpowder to England, worked on air flight and talked about lenses. His most important work, Opus Majus, had Bacon describe the magnifying properties of convex lenses. Quote, if the letters of a book or any minute objects be viewed through a lesser segment of a sphere of glass or crystal whose plane base is laid upon them, they will appear far better and larger. Despite Bacon's interest in optics, he can't really be credited with any formal invention. Following Bacon's interventions, the next move was the development of spectacles. There is no clear evidence of where they came from. There was an obvious route of origin in Italy. One monk, Giordano di Rivalto, a monk in Pisa in 1305, once said that it had been 20 years since the first spectacles were invented, and he had met the man who made them. Other evidence lists the dating of the invention of glasses at between 1285 to 1300. These Italian spectacle makers were lucky in that they had access to Venetian glassworks, which was an industry handed down to them from the Byzantine traders. As a manufacturer of convex spectacles increased, the news of their effects began to spread to other countries. By the end of the 16th century, spectacle makers had spread out to Holland and Germany. In 1589, Gian Bastina della Porta of Naples talked about the potential for concave glasses too. Quote, by means of a concave glass, you will see distant objects small but clear. With a Vix glass, near objects magnified but dim. If you know how to combine them exactly, and you will see both distant and near objects larger than they would otherwise appear, and very distant. Close quotes. Yet it wasn't in Italy where the telescope originated, but Holland. There is seemingly little doubt about the Dutch being the inventors, though which Dutchman it was is still a question. The telescope seems to have appeared to several people at once. Many have unquestioningly given the prize of inventor to Hans Lippershey, an obscure spectacle maker, who made a telescope putting convex and concave lenses together. At the time of the invention, Holland was engaged in a dramatic war with Spain over Dutch independence. The initial monocular telescope was given to the state for testing. Meanwhile, a couple of other Dutchmen were also inventing similar. Jacob Adrian Zoon of Alkmaar claimed to have made a telescope of as good quality with inferior materials. While also Zacharias Janssen and son Hans also claimed to have invented the telescope first. Yet what evidence we have suggests it was as much a microscope, not a telescope, they invented. Very quickly after the development of the telescope, it was decided, with all of these competing claims, not to offer a patent to Hans Lippershey. So, in 1609, telescopes went on sale in Paris. One scientist, Galileo Galilei, heard of Lippershey's invention in May 1609, when he was 45 years old. Galileo wanted to study medicine, and even attended monastery school near Florence, but realised he wanted to study mathematics. 
he left without completing his degree. After leaving, he taught mathematics privately at a Benedictine abbey. In 1586, Galileo published a short work about weighing small quantities of precious metals in water and air to work out their purity. This brought him the attention of the academic community. Following the death of his father, Galileo became financially responsible for the family in 1592 and was made Professor of Mathematics at the University of Padua, where he was granted a 1,000 florin salary for life. And so in 1609, having heard about these telescopes, he set about to make his own. He made his own within 24 hours and wrote of its development. It was nothing more than a tube and a lens, but a telescope nonetheless. Over the next few months, Galileo worked on an instrument that would later be passed around the elite of Venice. The telescope was instantly mounted on the highest church towers in Venice to see the shipping fleets two hours before they began to sail into port. For his troubles, Galileo's salary doubled. Often seen as the inventor of the telescope, Galileo was quick to note that he wasn't the inventor though there was a difference between his methodological approach to building his later telescopes and the haphazard way Lippershey and the telescopes of Northern Europe were made, making them more toys than scientific instruments. Galileo's first telescope used lenses from a local optician, but he soon turned into grinding his own lenses. On the 7th of January 1610, Galileo observed Jupiter and saw three bright stars near the planet, taking them to be fixed stars. By January 13th, he had seen four stars near Jupiter, when he realised they were actually satellites. He too observed the moon, realising it wasn't smooth like the Romans believed it to be, nor was it made of cheese, but instead it was rough and mountainous. He could see the Milky Way galaxy above him, and could see stars that went beyond the Milky Way. It must have been a revelation to him, and to those who used his telescopes to see the moons of Saturn and the expanding cosmos. Galileo published his observations, which contradicted much of Aristotelian science. Yet Galileo didn't highlight these elements, just laying out his own facts. Some rapid Aristotle fanboys refused to even look at Galileo's work, in a kind of cancel culture kind of way, proclaiming Galileo wrong simply for contradicting Aristotle. Even great scientists like Johannes Kepler proclaimed only to believe Galileo until he saw the satellites of Saturn himself. So when he did in August 1610, he had a reprint of Galileo's publication Siderus Nunicus in his hometown in acceptance of Galileo's ideas. What are now called the Galilean moons may not have all been first seen by him. And we know Galileo certainly wasn't the first person to see the moon through a telescope. That was Englishman Thomas Harriot, who mapped it before Galileo, and more accurately too, according to Sir Patrick Moore. While Chinese astronomer Gan Dei may have seen Saturn's moon of Ganymede with the naked eye as long ago as 365 BC. Most do give its discovery to Galileo. 
Galileo's scientific discoveries kept on coming, as in 1611 he wrote a letter stating that planets don't shine by their own light, but are reflected by the sun, and that they revolve around the sun too. He further observed Saturn and made many observations of Saturn's rings. In March 1611, Galileo went to Rome and introduced his telescope to the ecclesiastical authorities, where they analysed it and later observed Jupiter and its moons for themselves. The first printed use of the word telescope was used in 1612, and Galileo was received with the greatest honour in Rome, meeting Pope Urban VIII himself and showing him his telescopes. Later that year, the first murmurs of theological dissent began to be felt in Rome with the monk Sisi, who said the moons of Jupiter were incompatible with the doctrines of Holy Scripture. By 1616, this theological criticism had grown to more of a torrent, and when visiting Rome, Galileo was told to abandon his opinions. Galileo refused perhaps not taking the threats too seriously. In 1623, Galileo published more work based of previous Copernican theory. He was again summoned to Rome to be charged with evasion of the 1616 prohibition. A recantation followed and he was sentenced to house arrest near Florence. For years he was troubled by the Inquisition, but still managed to publish more work. Galileo, as a scientific instrument maker, was to focus on the optics of his telescopes rather than their mounting. The way Galileo made his telescopes was to give a well-illuminated field a vision to light up the bright images of distant objects. Yet a disadvantage of his telescopes is the small field of vision. Johannes Kepler too made telescopes. Kepler demonstrated the long-known Islamic theory that light does not come from the retina and before an object can be seen, its image must form on the retina. So by the time of Galileo's house arrest, more theoretical conceptions of the telescope were beginning to be propagated. From Descartes to Wilbrod Snell in 1621, over the middle of the 17th century, there began to be more material improvements in telescopes as more theory went towards experimentation. Telescopes became longer and provided ever higher magnification. One of the first long telescopes was in Danzig, where Hevelius observed the sun, moon, planets and comets. Publishing his first work in 1647, it had the first complete lunar atlas after four years of careful observation. In 1659, Christine Huygens published his book, Systemia Saturnium. His book concluded that Saturn was a planet accompanied by a ring, thin plane, nowhere attached, and an inclined to the elliptic. Their 23-foot telescope, twice as big as the one in Danzig, was soon usurped by Hevelius, who made a 60-foot telescope, and then a 70-foot telescope, and then a 150-foot telescope. The lenses for the 150-foot version were made by a local expert glassmaker, while the telescope itself was supported by the most elaborate mechanisms to hold it. Sketch drawings of it make it look more like an instrument of war than of science. 
In Danzig, the fame of Hevelius' telescope spread throughout Europe far more than Huygens's, and Hevelius planned a tower to house the telescope. But the 1679 Danzig fire spread throughout the observatory, burning it all down. This didn't stop the future building of observatories throughout Europe, though, with Huygens building a 123-foot telescope and discarding the wooded tube and embracing iron. Huygens also developed the compound negative eyepiece. Two thin convex layers of the same type of glass held separate colours better for the eyepiece. Today, it is still being named the Huygens' eyepiece. Soon, the making of telescopes was big business. Both experimentation and production boomed. By the middle of the 17th century, and Italy still hadn't really lost its place as the head of the scientific world. And it's here we have the crossover with microscopes. The most prolific makers of telescopes were Davini in Bologna and Campani of Rome, who also made microscopes. Campani is the more famous maker, due to discoveries made by Cassini with their telescopes, such as the rotation of Mars and that Jupiter revolves on its axis. Cassini was famous enough to warrant a visit to Paris at the request of Louis XIV. Louis XIV would later order a newly erected observatory in Paris, which sparked off a boom in the study of physical astronomy. Cassini would later discover Saturn's rings were separated by a space now known as Cassini's Divide. English astronomy began as a reaction to the growing French interest in the new burgeoning scientific field. The Royal Society was founded in 1660, and represented by men like Edmund Haley and Robert Hooke, who began to encourage the research of lenses and eyepieces. Already by 1628, many London spectacle makers were turning to making optical instruments. Over the next few decades, the London instrument makers began to catch up to their European brethren. Soon the skill of these Londoners began to produce glass of such high quality that smaller London telescopes became more powerful for their length in comparison to those huge European contraptions. This might have been because those at the Royal Society were far more interested in charting the stars for navigational reasons, so required slightly different types of telescopes, as we talked a couple of episodes back in the navigation episode. In 1675, King Charles II commissioned the building of the Royal Observatory at Greenwich and installed John Flamsteed as his first Astronomer Royal. This too was founded to help with navigation and not astronomy. As the 17th century drew to a close, it was realised the super-long telescopes might be seeing a decline. By Cassini's death in 1712, these long telescopes weren't being made as nobody seemed to be able to replicate the skills and quality the old telescope makers had. By the time Newton was making experiments in physical optics, the long focus retracting telescope, as the type developed by Galileo was now called, was in regular use all over European observatories. In 1663, James Gregory invented the Gregorian reflector, which has four mirrors which arguably became the biggest development in telescopes to date. This is now where we also have to get into science. 
The previous telescopes were refracting telescopes. Refracting telescopes have a lens at the front and then a long tube and then an eyepiece. This new Gregorian design, and it was only a design at the moment, not a natural product, was a reflecting telescope, where a single or combination of curved mirrors reflect the light to form an image. The benefits of this new type of telescope was that it was better for colour clarification and, therefore, the image was sharper. This Gregorian design was aimed to be made by James Gregory himself, but he struggled to actually make it. He ordered a six-foot mirror, but the opticians weren't able to make it, so he went to Italy to see if it could be built there. Yet Gregory's design was able to be made, but it would have to be built by somebody else, somebody called Isaac Newton. Newton was born in Lincolnshire in 1642 with his father, also called Isaac Newton, who died three months before he was born. Newton's mother, Hannah, remarried when he was young, and Newton grew up a lonely child. Perhaps part of the reason Newton was later seen as quite an unpleasant man, though the mercury poisoning arising from chemical experiments may not have helped either. He was educated at the King's School in Grantham, where he distinguished himself, and in 1661 he was admitted to Trinity College, Cambridge. He supplemented the study of Aristotle with Descartes, Galileo and Kepler, and kept a notebook on his observations. He got his degree in 1665, whereupon the university was shut down due to the plague. Spending the next two years at home formulating ideas about gravitation, optics and calculus. In April 1667, Newton went back to Cambridge and, elected as a Fellow of Trinity College, succeeded his former advisor, Isaac Barrow, as still is one of the most prominent posts in academia, the Lucian Professor of Mathematics. In 1669, Newton opted to make a Gregorian telescope, using a smaller and flatter glass than Gregory. This method was called a Newtonian reflector and still popular with amateur astronomers. This first instrument was only known to a few of his Cambridge friends. However, with Newton's previous work on colour attracting him to the Royal Society, they heard about his telescope, which Newton described himself as basically a toy, but they still wanted to see it. So Newton set about making a second, better telescope to present to them. This telescope was inspected by the Royal Society in 1671, with such luminaries as Charles II, Robert Murray, Robert Hooke and Christopher Wren all looking at it. At the meeting, Newton was elected as a member of the Royal Society. Around the same time, a Frenchman also claimed to have invented a reflecting telescope. Cassegrain may well have invented a telescope similar and, as he claimed, superior to Newton's, despite not knowing anything about Newton's. This claim annoyed Newton, who started writing what could only be described as dis-letters. In 1672, he wrote to the Royal Society to describe how the Cassegrainian model was inferior to his own, and the Frenchman began to slide into obscurity, as Newton's designs spread throughout Europe. Newton began to be known as the telescope maker of England. Later astronomer William Herschel 
didn't take much of an interest in practical astronomy until he was 35, yet he instantly seemed to take to it, making his own telescope and cast and polishing his own mirrors, all in order to make a model in the Newtonian sense, with a magnification of 40 to see the rings of Saturn. So following that five and a half foot model telescope, he started to scale up, making a seven foot model. In 1774, Herschel then moved to Bath to make a 10 foot model. In 1781, Herschel noticed an object appearing as a disc. He recorded a, quote, curious either nebulous star or perhaps a comet, close quotes. When Herschel subsequently reported the discovery to Neville Maskelyne, the Astronomer Royal, and Russian Anders Letzel, its orbit was worked out, and it was agreed that it probably was a planet. He called the planet the Georgian Star, after King George. But in France, they didn't want to be named after a British monarch, and so called the planet Herschel, before adopting the name Uranus. This discovery brought Herschel instant fame in magazines and journals across the country. It also meant he was taken seriously in the astronomical world, and so were his instruments. Herschel got money from the king to build a huge 40-foot telescope, which attracted attention even before its completion. It was completed in 1789, with some comparing it to the Colossal of Rhodes. It became a stopping point around the area of Bath. Yet, this belied any real achievements made using the telescope. It took too long to sit up most of the time and couldn't do long-term astronomy. The expansion of the new world and increasing demand from the United States for optical instrument makers around this period cemented the London market as the place to go for these instruments. Despite the revolution, Britain and the United States' commerce was only mildly affected and rebounded quickly after the revolution. The development of Herschel in Britain led to two different types of astronomy, one state-funded and aimed at completing star charts for the most significant purposes of navigation, as we saw in the previous episode. The other, inspired by Herschel, was looking towards the stars themselves and wanted to know what they were planets, suns, moons, comets, etc. Until the middle of the 19th century, the Royal Observatory's role was largely in this navigation-related astronomy. But as navigation maps became filled, there was a decreasing amount of need for it, and a change was needed. This resulted in a lack of competitive edge, as the industry around the charting of the stars for navigation declined and had an effect on the Royal Society's change into a purely esoteric scientific institution. London glassmakers began to lose their competitive edge, especially as British society started to industrialise and it lost much of its artisanal manufacturing edge in favour of mass market produce. The high-end, bespoke manufacturing moved away from England, allowing Switzerland and France to start to catch up in the making of telescopes. Despite the British trying to bribe one of these new generation of continental glassmakers £25,000 to reveal the secrets of their glassmaking, he refused. Even the Royal Observatory began to buy Swiss by the 1830s. Yet, 
Many wealthy astronomers still stuck to their reliable reflecting telescopes, with even larger mirrors to see the stars. The role of telescopes didn't escape the clutches of the British Empire either, with observatories springing up all over the Empire, with the Navy establishing an observatory at Cape Town in 1820. The telescope during this time became a fixture in culture, especially naval culture. Images of Nelson looking through a telescope were spread across the empire, though for some reason these images were him using his blind eye to look through the telescope. The telescope became the prop to indicate scientific interest and learning, as the scientific revolution fixated in popular and literate circles and became fashionable across Europe. Telescopes were presented as the tools of enlightenment to help understand God's universe. Telescopes were featured in the most popular literature and plays of the time, with the scientific method and scientific instruments featured heavily. This of course invited a counter-reaction. In Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift took on the scientific establishment of the day, lampooning the Royal Society as a group of absent-minded philosophers speculating on the nature of science. Other developments to essentially the same technology was the binoculars. In the 19th century, it was put to use on the battlefield. British officers, however, didn't really use them, relying instead on their trusty telescopes to do battlefield observations. It was probably a good move to introduce them, even if they weren't great, because their use increased over time as the technology got better and better. At the same time, as military developments were made to miniaturise the telescope technology, it was increasingly used for commercial folk. Its use was also increased commercially for things like bird watching. By the First World War, binoculars developed from a fairly poor device in the colonial era to indispensable by the outbreak of war, especially in the trenches. Out at sea telescopes were still mostly used, while the increasingly good telescopic lenses was a mini race in and of itself. The main benefit was to get better sights for the heavy guns. The Germans arguably lost this race. Binoculars would improve over the course of the 20th century, but telescopes themselves too took off in size and capability. The late 19th century saw the last practical culmination of the refracting telescope with the Yerkes Observatory, but the reflecting telescope started to increase in popularity especially after Leon Foucault's discovery in 1857 of a technique for silvering glass to allow the production of more reflective telescope mirrors. This development doubled the reflectivity of metal mirrors. The other development was the development of astrophysics designs. The astronomers slowly moved over to accept their astrophysics overlords as they grew out of the photographic spectroscopic methods developed towards the end of the 19th century and towards a genuine branch of physics. With the new world's industrial power and might, they were able to fund huge telescope constructions to take advantage of the US's size and its latitude to find the very best spots for observatories. The Americans developed the Yerkes Refracting Telescope and then the Mount Wilson Solar Observatory in Pasadena, Southern California. An even larger telescope was then built in 1917, called the Hooker Telescope, which enabled Edwin Hubble and others to begin to picture the universe. 
Hubble concluded the universe was not just one galaxy, but many galaxies, and that the universe which contained all of this was still expanding. These revelations soon spread all over the world. Since Hubble's work, telescopes have gotten bigger and bigger. The Hale telescope showed Walter Bade exactly how far away the Andromeda galaxy is from us. While since the 1980s and 1990s, computers have been used to help angle mirrors, while the photographic plate in telescopes has replaced the eye to capture images and has been employed more and more. This means that with the slow AI data revolution, more and more astronomy is and will be done by AI bots gaining more insight into the cosmos. By the space age, it became possible to conceive of a huge telescope in space. It would avoid atmospheric disturbance and light pollution, and allow astronomers to observe radiation like X-rays and ultraviolet, which don't reach the Earth's surface. With the ambitious American space programs of the age enabling things like five to six billion dollar projects, a breakthrough came in 1975, with NASA and the European Space Agency agreeing to develop a space telescope. The telescope went through developmental hell, with competing political, economic and scientific agendas, while cuts in NASA meant the large space telescope simply became the Space Telescope, with a 2.5-metre mirror being placed in constant scrutiny. The telescope was subsequently named after astronomer Edwin Hubble. After a problem with a primary mirror being in the wrong shape, the telescope was repaired and is now seen as a great success. Today, the Hubble Space Telescope, like other telescopes before it, is probably one of the most famous and popular pieces of scientific instrumentation. It's also at the cutting edge of scientific technology. Something like particle accelerators and telescopes should always be at the very cutting edge of human knowledge. The Hubble Space Telescope has since confirmed the existence of black holes, photographed new galaxies of all shapes and sizes. It's shown us a comet colliding with Jupiter and the explosions of dying stars. The development of telescopic technology is just the beginning. The James Webb Space Telescope is succeeding Hubble. A combined 6.5 metre mirror and a cost of $10 billion, it is the future of astrophysics. Astronomy has changed dramatically since Galileo and the Dutch instrument makers in both scale and power, but the basic principle has not changed. What the James Webb Telescope will look for is everything and anything that is cosmologically possible. But what is assured is that we will carry on looking. Microscopes. So now we get on to the second part of the podcast. This technology is not about looking for the big, but the small. The small has been fascinating for millennia. Ever since Democritus thought an atom might be the building blocks of matter. Like the telescope, the Greeks laid down some of the foundational information about the microscope. Their work on light and optics helped later more applied work to be developed. The simple idea that light is refracted by water and therefore glass, and that if the glass is refracted correctly, it can be magnified, and this was known to some extent, but theoretical knowledge like that needs to be applicable to make larger societal differences. The first real application 
with this was in Italy with the development of optics to aid vision as spectacles. For the most part, the microscope was seen as just the reversion of the telescope. You could claim its two inventions with one stone, but the microscope quickly diverged from the telescope into its own scientific instrument. The first real microscope containing two or more lenses is often given to Hans Jensen and his son Zacharias of Middleburg, Holland, around 1595. It was described as three sliding tubes 18 inches in length, supported by a brass tripod. After Janssen's development, the idea of a microscope, like the telescope before it, spread across Europe. The smallest object the human eye can see is about 0.1 to 0.2 millimetres. Perhaps the first major book of microscopy was Robert Hooke, who was curator at the Royal Society. In 1665, he published Micrographia, which reported on his instruments and observations. Though the first major figure in microscopy was Antony van Leeuwenhoek, little is known of his early life, but he managed to be the first to discover bacteria, sperm cells and blood cells, and build 500 microscopes in his life. His most powerful lenses had magnification of 300 times. Developments in microscopy were a lot slower than in the telescope world. After Hooke and van Leeuwenhoek, there were few developments for quite a while. The simple microscope had reached its limits in what we were able to see and do. Then, beginning a couple of hundred years later with Joseph Jackson Lister, who developed lenses that stopped spherical and chromatic aberration. That was basically used to improve the colour spectrum, which means, in layman's terms, that you stop the curvature of the lenses from distorting the picture. And he did this in 1825. While much of the history of microscopy so far had been used on biological materials, this hit a lull and slowly microscopy moved towards starting to look at metals. Many had used their microscopes to look at metals, but their opaqueness wasn't great for examination. Biological items had a more transparent nature and so were easier to see. This idea of using microscopes to examine inorganic objects was most fully developed by Henry Clifton Sorby from Sheffield, who was increasingly interested in examining metals, especially meteorites. Living in Sheffield, the great steel city with its history of metallurgy was the perfect place for him to invent new ways to study microscopical structures of iron and steel. He became the first to understand that it was the precise quantity of carbon in steel that gave it its strength. Sorby used reflected light to allow for better photography of metals, showing the impurities to steel makers of their own steel. These key insights helped Sheffield develop into the steel powerhouse of the world through mass production techniques like the Bessemer process. Perhaps the next big invention in microscopes was the electron microscope. Credit for the electron microscope should go to Max Noll in Berlin, who reported on development and experiments with magnetic lenses. To further add confusion, in the same year, two other German scientists also presented the same observation. The truth is many people helped develop the electron microscope complete with an electron gun, condenser, objective and projector lens, 
along with photographic plate. The photographic plate was crucial. Electrons are not visible by the human eye, so the electron image must be converted into visible light. The use of the correct screens will enable electrons to fall onto a photographic plate or film, where a high-resolution negative may be created, which can then be enlarged. The most useful use of this new microscope was in biological materials. Today, hospitals are full of these types of microscopes, for diagnostic reasons as well as research. There are other types of microscopes too. They are probably too specialised to get into, but fluorescent microscopy, electron microscopy, X-ray microscopes and super-resolution microscopes have all jumped onto this central insight, enabling humans to see smaller and smaller objects, giving us new insights into the world. The microscope has one more major development I'd like to address, that is the ability to see nanophase materials. This ability to see nanophase materials can't be done with conventional microscopes due to the properties inherent in materials this small. A wave of light is literally too small to get between the gaps at this smaller level. Over the 20th century there were developments, but it took until 2013 for it to reach the mainstream. Stephen Hall, William Mona and Eric Betzig won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2014 for the development of super-resolved fluorescent microscopy, which brings optical microscopy into the nano-dimension. This was a long way away from Anthony van den Leeuwenhoek, who focused on light through lenses and looking at cells. But these three laid the foundations of a technique called single fluorophore microscopy, showing it was possible to detect light emitted by a single fluorescent molecule. It had been noted in 1873 by Ernst Abbe that visible light cannot distinguish between objects closer than 200 nanometers, about half the wavelength of visible light. So the laws of physics mean you can't actually see any smaller. Electron microscopes that emit electrons can be used for finer resolutions, but they can only be used in a vacuum, limiting their use for dead objects. So what the Nobel Prize winners did was use a fluorescent molecule to emit light when hit by lasers of a certain wavelength. In 1989, William Mona found a way to control the fluorescence of a molecule and control it like light. Eric Betzig had proposed an idea that if different molecules inside a cell could be made to glow with different colours, researchers could be able to increase resolutions of the photographs to produce a much finer resolution view for the researcher. It took Betzig until 2006 for a working version of this idea to be put into practice. It can now take images of 20 nanometers. Uses of the microscope are already in the world, such as biology, where it's been used to show how filaments of the protein wrap around nerve cells. And this, to most purposes, is the end of the telescope. The super-resolved fluorescent microscopy of 2013 and the James Webb Telescope of today are still some of the leading scientific instruments of the day. The telescope and microscope, both the same shade of the same scientific progress, were key to helping us understand, interpret and test theories, 
all of which has massively aided science and the scientific method by enabling easier testing and observations. The telescope and microscope are classic type 2 inventions, the putting together of other inventions of scientific improvement to make something new. The development of glass and lenses were the key and significant development. A completely new industry was therefore born. The telescope and microscope has enabled some of the greatest scientific discoveries and pushed us ever further into looking at the big and the very, very small. So for all of these reasons, the telescope and microscope are listed at number 56 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time. <laughs>